You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer. Another busy week in North Carolina politics. Uh, The uh, budget seemed to suck up most of the air over at the uh, legislature this week, but we are coming up on a primary on June 7th, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. We had some developments on coal ash this week, which we'll also be uh, getting to in a, in a bit. So uh, lots to talk about this week and a uh, jam-packed show. we got the full cast of uh, News Observer and Insider reporters uh, joining me to go over all the developments. Um, and we're starting out on the budget since that did seem to uh, be the story of the week. Uh, didn't quite overshadow House Bill 2, but it got sort of close, maybe, or at least at least did the best of our efforts to uh, to try to uh, cover all the, the aspects of the budget proceedings this week in the House. And joining me to talk about the budget is uh, Pat Gannon of The Insider. Uh, Pat, what, uh, what were the big uh, takeaways from this year's uh, budget process in the House? I don't think there were, there were that that many, although the uh, the final vote uh, in both days, so the, the budget passed uh, Wednesday and Thursday, and the final vote was uh, one thirteen to twelve, I believe. One oh three to twelve, I think. Yeah. Yeah. One, Unless yeah, they one, added some yeah, members. <laughs> that's right. There's only 120 House members. One oh three to uh, to twelve, and it was the same twelve Democrats each time that voted against it. And I thought it was interesting that uh, Representative Larry Hall of Durham, the House Minority Leader, uh, mentioned that the Democrats didn't really have a a strategy this time around in terms of of how they were going to vote they kind of let each individual uh democrat decide what they wanted to do and so it kind of split the democrats a little bit although more voted uh for it uh for the house budget than against it and representative darren jackson from wake county mentioned that his vote he was voting for it begrudgingly um but only uh to kind of send a message to the senate that that we really support this house budget and the raises it gives to uh to uh, teachers and state employees and the colas for retirees. Uh, Representative Larry Hall had said in the past, the Democrats had decided to all vote against the budget at one point and uh, against the Republican drawn budget uh, one year and then all decided to vote uh, for it another year. And that didn't really work. And they still got rolled by the Senate each time. So they kind of just decided to let every uh, member do their thing this time and see how it uh, shakes out with the Senate. So the Senate has the budget now, $22.225 billion is the the limit they have to spend. And um, so we'll see how that unfolds in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, it was interesting to me. I actually looked back and saw that um, since the Republicans took over, there's not been anywhere close to this many Democrats uh, voting for a Republican-led budget. Um, and it's interesting to me. Uh, Larry Hall has sort of pointed out, yeah, he's you know letting people go their own way. Uh, but at the same time, he spoke very uh, eloquently against the budget, that it doesn't do enough for teachers. And in a sense, his case is almost undermined a little bit by the Democrats not going with him. And I have to wonder if this is not a worry for the Democratic House caucus going forward, because their goal this year in this election year is to get, I think, was it five or six seats that they have to flip in the House to break the supermajority? Yeah, it's four, actually. Four, yeah. yeah. So it's really not that I – mean, it's not a huge – hurdle to clear, especially if this is a positive election year for Democrats, which is what some folks are saying at the national level. Um, But if they don't have any caucus discipline to where the the caucus leader can uh, get everybody to to vote the same way, then they're not going to necessarily be able to to break a veto override vote in the House if you've got a Democratic governor and, uh, you know, they were able to uh, try to deal with the 
um, vetoed legislation. Yeah, I think it's been interesting to watch the uh, the dynamic in the in the House Democratic Caucus o- over the last couple of years. Um, there's basically been, so there's been the uh, the Main Street Democrats who have kind of become this. Um, more fiscally conservative, but but still, uh, they don't want to deal with social uh, issues, and so they voted with with the Republicans, the House Republicans, on a lot of different issues from incentive, from economic incentives to budgets. The past couple of years, while there's this, still this kind of uh, Larry Hall led group of very uh, liberal Democrats, um, and you can see their names on the, the the ones who voted no against the budget. Um, that are kind of sticking to that more far left uh, Democratic line. So it's interesting to watch the, you know, we talk a lot about the divide in the House Republican Party. There's clearly a divide in the House Democratic Party as well. Yeah, so uh, in looking back at the budget, uh, it'll be interesting to see what the the Senate does with this. Um, I have a feeling they're going to want to go faster into the uh, income tax cuts. The the House plan uh, phases in over four years. any sense for whether that's if they do that plan faster in the the Bob Rucho approach, will we be working with less money to go around for raises and some of the other stuff that's been the, the marquee items in the House budget? I would think so. That's uh, the way it's looking. If they give all the tax cuts in in two years as opposed to four, that's kind of uh, double the money that they'll have to uh, um, to save in the budget. Then um, they did the Senate, I believe, uh, has scheduled a vote for Monday night on. Senator Rucho's uh, bill, uh, the zero tax bracket bill that would that would um, um, uh, raise the standard deduction over two years instead of four, um, like the House had wanted to do. So I, I think Senator Rucho just wanted a an up or down vote on that. I don't I don't know. If, I assume they are going to have to put it in their budget as well. Yeah, I would think so. But I think the up or down vote probably does help him out at least some because I, I was really surprised in the committee meeting that went through last week that pretty much all the Democrats uh, supported it, which uh, seemed a little bit at odds to me that the Democrats have always kind of said, you know, the Republican tax plan is a failure because it's not targeted at low income people. They want to bring back the earned income tax credit instead. And in this case, everyone seems cool with the idea of uh, bringing up the standard Reduction. Um, so I think if you get a if you were to get like a near unanimous vote in the Senate for that on a standalone bill, then that probably uh, improves the Senate's bargaining position going into budget negotiations as to which version uh, makes it into the final. That's right, and I can't imagine many Democrats voting uh, against a you know an increase in the standard deduction, which is going to help primarily people of you know middle middle and lower incomes. Um, there will be some higher earners that 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 don't itemize their deductions that will still uh, get that tax break. But but compared to the more recent or, or the tax breaks over the past few years, this one is definitely going to help the middle class more than uh, the ones we've seen in the past. Yeah. And I have to wonder if that didn't play into some of the, the Democrats voting for the budget is this, this is an election year. And the last thing anybody wants is to give their opponent the ability to say, you voted against teacher raises, you voted against tax cuts for the middle class. Um, nobody really ever wants that on their resume or on the little postcards that get mailed out to attack them. Right. I didn't, I didn't uh, do the, uh, the deeper dive into whether the, the Democrats who voted against the budget are, are opposed this year, but that'd be an interesting, uh, um, you know, thing to look at. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, uh, a good look at the budget. Thanks, Pat. And uh, I wanted to turn next to, to Dan Boylan, who was covering the uh, the bill that was kind of under the radar, below the budget, uh, on some of the same days that the uh, the budget was the, the marquee item. Uh, tell us a little about that. It was a local bill, but one that uh, had a pretty interesting backstory. That's right, Colin. Thank you. Yeah, it's fascinating when the hallways of the General Assembly are filled with uh, people scurrying about settling budgets uh, when these backs, when these fascinating other bills sort of slip underneath the radar. This was one. This was the Village of Tobaccoville. Uh, it's it's a, near Winston-Salem. It's near Winston-Salem yeah. in the rolling green hills out there. It's got 2,400 residents. Uh, the state, Tobaccoville was asking the General Assembly to intervene in a local uh, issue. It's mayor. Uh, the state constitution has got no provision to recall an elected official. Uh, so they were asking Representative Deborah Conrad if she could go in and amend the village uh, charter, the village charter, right, so that they could recall the mayor. The issue with the mayor was that in December, uh, the town is very rural, as I'm saying. It's out in the rolling hills. And apparently there was uh, some issue with uh, a firing range. And we get into real countryside yeah. stuff here. Yeah, oh, so. I've, I've covered many of those where, where somebody has a shooting range and they've got a little too many neighbors who don't want to hear 800 gunshots a day. And apparently not only 800 gunshots, but an explosion that rattled windows about a mile or so away. <laughs> uh, so I think people were scratching their heads saying, you know, this is the countryside, but what's going on? This is intense. So the mayor put together an ordinance that was that you could not discharge a firearm within 1,000 feet of a building, and you couldn't apparently shoot at exploding targets. So he thought that this was a good thing to do. There was a lot of gossip about what was going on at this firing range. He got ready then to go down to the village council. And the town, I was told from, from uh, Conrad, Representative Conrad, doesn't have a stoplight. So he goes down to this office, in the, basically in the crossroads of the town, where there's no stop sign, there's no stoplight. And he's ready to go in and have a vote on these ordinances. But he's heard, sort of watching Facebook, that uh, a huge crowd is gathered because I, I believe that what happened was that once the word went out that there could potentially be anti-gun legislation. Yeah, oh, yeah, the, the, the gun rights groups will come out and force the surge. They don't even need to necessarily be from your town. They can The surge over, was yeah. on. Right, so apparently he went, he went to the mayor's office. He opened it up, took out all of his stuff, locked the doors, and handed the key in. And he walked away, apparently, and he resigned in front of the temporary town attorney. So before the village council could then return and accept his resignation, about three days later, when they were going to have another meeting, they didn't pass this, any of these gun ordinances. He came in, he grabbed the gavel, he hammered the meeting to order, and he declared himself the mayor again. So, so now they want to get rid of him because they're like, well, you're... Are you the mayor yeah, or not? You, you, you can't decide which days of the week you want to be our mayor. Um, right, right. So, yeah. so the, one of the staffers on the, on the house, uh, it was the house... Of local governance committee asked the sort of philosophical question so who is actually in control <laughs> so, so, so then, now, yeah now <clears throat> the provision is potentially recall this guy and that's right. that's moving forward that's moving forward that's past the house and i think it's uh on to the senate next so we'll we'll see what happens in tobaccoville yeah man everyone's going to want to smoke a cigarette when all this is done yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks dan um and uh last on the segment i want to get a quick update on the uh coal ash situation from uh craig jarvis of the news and observer he's uh been following that another uh thing that was a much seemed much more of a controversy uh not that long ago before hb2 uh 
took up all the news cycle, but there's still some interesting developments in that, right, Greg? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think here we are almost two and a half years after the Dan River spill, and if there was any doubt, uh, coal ash is going to be a, a prominent part of the state's um, history for a long time to come. But there were a couple recent developments. On Wednesday was the deadline for uh, for uh, the state to come up with um, classifications for the coal ash ponds, to, I mean, dividing them up into three groups, high risk, intermediate, or low risk. Uh, and legislation required that eight of them, I think, had to be uh, high risk no matter what. So um, the uh, Environment Department came back and said, okay, besides those eight, the other 25 will be intermediate risk. And uh, that means they've got to be excavated, which is really bad news for Duke. They don't, that will cost somebody a lot of money, and they don't think that's necessary. But, um, and, it's a, and they, would, they think in a lot of cases you can just, what they call cap in place, just cover it up. Um, but what the interesting twist is they asked for 18, 18 months from now, let's reconsider it. Let's see where things stand because it's kind of fluid. You know, we're making repairs and that kind of thing. And that was enough to kind of open up uh, some concerns among environmentalists who said that it's, uh, you know, that it's really um, kind of undoes this whole, make, renders meaningless this whole classification of, of uh, intermediate risk because it, uh, it says that that all could change. It's really meaningless right now. Uh, at its most sinister, the Southern Environmental Law Center brings up the possibility or points out that, well, that would 18 months from now will be after the election, too. So they can talk tough now and then change everything back then. So that that happened. The um, the department has 60 days to adopt those uh, those classifications. Another development this week that's kind of been budding, part of the Coal Ash Management Act from 2014 was you had to the state had to go out and test drink private drinking water wells uh, in areas near near the coal ash ponds. And uh, uh, last year they issued do not drink orders to about three or 400 homes. Uh, and Duke, as a show of good faith or whatever, has been providing bottled water for these people all that time. Uh, just in March, suddenly the health department under the newly appointed uh, health director uh, rescinded that, that that do not drink notice and said, well, it's okay. We were being cautious, but it's okay. Well, it wasn't okay with the, the people who live there. They, they have lost all trust in, uh, in, the, in the regulators, their ability to be independent of Duke Energy, a lot of uproar. That was the way things stood as of March. Last week, the Southern Environmental Law Center released a deposition in a lawsuit that they've conducted of, the, uh, of testimony with a state epidemiologist who said under oath, that she herself had concerns about rescinding that notice. Well, that opened the door further to more, more concerns. She also testified that the governor's office had input into how these notices should be worded, raising concerns about uh, McCrory and his ties to Duke Energy. Uh, yesterday, Thursday, the Democrats, some of the House Democrats, well, House and Senate Democrats, called for some kind of an investigation about what led up to all this. And additionally, one more deposition came out yesterday showing at least two other state health department people had expressed concerns so there's a real politics are really rushing into this uh, attempt to make sure the water is safe to drink but it's yeah i imagine flint is uh sort of spurred people to uh say well, hey we need to look at this more closely or this absolutely. is an issue people will be concerned about absolutely that's kind of foremost on a lot of people's uh the first thing you hear out of their mouth is this has the potential to be flint all across the state so uh it's a mess. It's going to be a mess for a long time, uh, all entangled with politics. And uh, in fact, one of the depositions said 
uh, one of the people to pose said that, yes, when we consider what's safe or not, we consider politics, which was kind of an interesting statement. Yeah, for sure. So lots more to come on coal ash. Thanks, Craig, for that. And uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to talk about the uh, debate last night or on Thursday night in the uh, second district uh, congressional primary, one of the hottest June races in North Carolina. Uh, and we'll also talk a little about uh, some uh, fact check action this week. Stay with us. Social Security believes the integrity of our programs is important. To protect the people we serve and the services we offer, we use many tools to identify, prevent, and stop fraud. We identify fraud by using tools that predict the chance of fraud happening. We also have stiff penalties that discourage people from committing fraud. Social Security has zero tolerance for fraud and so should you. If you suspect someone is committing Social Security fraud, report it online at http oigssagov report or call the Social Security Fraud Hotline at 1-800-269-0271. Welcome back to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer. And uh, a lot of people have probably forgotten that we still have uh, another primary coming up. Uh, it seems like the March primary is uh, becoming more and more distant in the rearview mirror. But because of uh, redistricting, uh, y'all got to go vote again on June 7th. And um, congressional races will be on there. So will a, a Supreme Court seat. Uh, so it's, uh, it's actually a pretty important election, uh, despite the fact that a lot of people are probably not thinking about it. And there's not been a whole lot of uh, heavy campaigning, at least that's, uh, that we've seen a lot of uh, in the last few weeks. But uh, one of the most interesting races uh, to watch is the second con- district congressional primary where uh, two Republican incumbents are duking it out, uh, Renee Elmers and George Holding, uh, with a, a third cast member, Greg Brannon, uh, joining the fray. And all three were on stage at WRAL last night. Uh, and uh, the News Observer's uh, Lynn Bonner and uh, Will Doran, as well as uh, Dan Boylan of The Insider, were, were watching. So uh, I guess Lynn, start us off. Tell us a little about the, the highlights of the debate and uh, what, what punches were being thrown last night over at RAL. Really interesting debate. And what makes this primary particularly interesting is that we have two incumbents um, who can actually compare records. I mean, there are really no hypotheticals, really, because we, they can say, um, okay, over these past terms, what have you voted for? What have you voted against? Um, you know, uh, Renee Elmers has always been a very um, aggressive debater and um, was eager to show contrasts um, with her votes and George Holdings. Uh, you know, there's an issue about who is the conservative in the conservative in the race. I mean, especially between those two, um, a lot of uh, groups that once supported Elmer's are now uh, backing Holding, and some actively uh, working for Elmer's defeat, saying that she is not conservative enough. Of course, she counters that, um, but they do have some uh, distinctions. Um, Elmer's says that she is someone who will go up and get things done and is faulted um, holding for votes that she says were against the military or against farmers. And we heard a lot from Holding last night saying, well, let's unpack some of those statements. His position is that um, voting for bills that um, would raise the debt or increase spending more than Uh, a certain degree are are bad bills. And he says that, you know, that's the way Washington works. They always package things. um, So uh, they put in mixed good things with things that are really noxious so to get people to vote for them. And he says, you know, some people have to stand up and say, 
they're not going to vote for that. And he referred to some of these bills that um, Elmer's voted for as bad Obama deals. So we have uh, some distinctions and some distinctive records um, there to look at. What I really, this is Dan, what I really enjoyed, uh, and Lynn, you could probably help me on this, but when you go into a, a debate and it's between two incumbents, their districts were gerrymandered together. They've both been in Washington for a while, so their egos are just bloated. What are there, 435 congressmen, congressmen and women in Washington, D.C.? So they get that, they get addicted to the Washington life, uh, the bootlickers that come with that, you know, and their their egos are big. So it's fun because you go in and as Lynn said, they, they actually have records, but they also have got gravitas. So what, what I thought was enjoyable was that we looked up and suddenly realized we're 51 minutes into this debate and the thing is over because they're really, they were skilled. They were skilled debaters. And so, Lynn, another part of this that was interesting was the uh, travel issue that uh, Elmers keeps uh, bringing up uh, about holding. What's that all about? Right. He's taken, uh, as her campaign says, 11 trips uh, to uh, seven, 11 foreign trips. And um, Elmer said that he was traveling like a monarch or something uh, last night. But um, he his explanation is that he wants to talk to U.S. allies because he doesn't have uh, believe what the Obama administration is telling us about them. Um, but she is um, calling his spending excessive um, and apparently wants an ethics investigation. Our um, colleague, Anna Douglas, uh, in Washington is interviewed holding about this and may have a story next week. And um, she has, says he has a good ex- explanation for this. And that some of those um, line items that look like he's spending a lot of money are actually is actually spending for the entire delegation that he's leading. So, um, what shows up on in the congressional record is really not the whole story behind uh, that the spending on those trips. And it's pretty common, I guess, for members of Congress to take these overseas trips. She has taken trips as well, not as many uh, that we can find, but she's also taken trips that are um, funded by private groups, which um, don't show up in the congressional record. So, um, and those trips also, you know, carry their own baggage. So, um, I think, Hol- didn't Holding mention too that he was a when he was younger, he was a staffer with Jesse Helms. Right, exactly. And that Helms encouraged his staff to travel, particularly to go around the middlemen that you would meet in foreign countries who may be set up to sort of grab a congressional delegation and try and spin you a bit. So, I mean, I thought that that was something that I, I've been overseas and dealt with congressional delegations. Some of them are magnificent. Others are just people who want a vacation paid by taxpayers. But when you get people that actually say they're they're interested in going around the middlemen to maybe potentially find out what's happening in Islamabad, there's some credibility to the fact that they even say that. So that was a fascinating part of the debate, I thought. Yeah, it was interesting. Oh. Yeah, and then there's, of course, a, a third character in all this who uh, is probably having a harder time getting into the spotlight with uh, with two incumbents. Greg Brannon's in there. Uh, what role did he play, if any, uh, in the debate last night? Well, uh, he was uh, a minimal part of the back and forth. It was mostly about numbers and holding. But, um, you know, he uh, sort of positions himself as the constitutionalist uh, among the three. And um, 
almost every uh, answer to a question is uh, referenced back to a section of the Constitution and uh, constitutional limits on government. Um, and potentially how the Islamic State is somehow manipulating the Constitution. Well, yeah. And he, seems, he seems to think that they're right in Cary. Like Interesting. Yeah, right around at the corner from his house. Well, yeah, that was well, madness. You know? Well, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it sort of adds a uh, flavor to the debate. Uh, but so, um, yes, but um, the moderator, David Krapig, also asked him about his um, IRS lien and uh, about his judgment um, that he's facing that he. Uh, uh, gave some improper indigre- in information to investors in a in a private company. So um, he's got issues. I mean, he's he's now run a lot. He's run twice for U.S. Senate and just jumped into this race when he lost a, a, a Senate primary. So he has name recognition. How much um, that's going to help him break through in this race when we have incumbents with. Uh, money and money to advertise is is a big question. Yeah, this race is going to be interesting, too, because uh, a good chunk of this newly drawn second is actually George Holdings' old 13th. A decent chunk, I think actually a smaller chunk, is Elmer's current second. So we'll have to see if if voters aren't just picking who their congressman was last year and and sort of leaving it at that. And then you see all this weird colors on the map, uh, precinct by precinct, uh, come June 7th. All right. Well, thanks, uh, Lynn and Dan, for uh, that update. And uh, finish up this segment talking to uh, Will Doran of the News and Observer and PolitiFact North Carolina about some of the uh, fact checks that have gone on this week. Uh, still lots of facts to check on uh, House Bill 2. And uh, we'd be remiss if we went a single dome cast without getting something in on, on House Bill 2. So, uh, Will, tell us about the uh, the issue of how much is House Bill 2 really costing us? It seems like we've gotten a lot of anecdotal stuff. We've got a lot of studies that have come out from somewhat biased organizations that uh, want to show that, that this is uh, super costly. What's what's really going on here? Sure. Yeah, there was a, uh, I guess the main study that's out there is by the uh, Center for American Progress, which is a liberal think tank up in Washington, D.C. Um, they have uh, previously featured in fact checks. Um gave them a mostly false for a statement that they had made about HB2 previously um, and some spending issues. So when I saw that they had released a study on more numbers related to HB2, I was a little skeptical, but um, it turned out that they actually had numbers to back up most of what they had claimed. Um, and the study said that, you know, eventually if all of the various companies that have made threats or expressed displeasure with the law were to Uh, you know, follow through, the state could lose $570 million. So that's if like all 180 companies on the human rights campaign list decided, you know, we're not going to do business in North Carolina, as opposed to just saying we don't like this law. Not not quite all those companies. It it did go for specific ones, you know, like ESPN saying that it might pull the X Games from Charlotte or... um, uh, for example, Braeburn Pharmaceuticals, which has since said that they're not going to pull their plans, but they had previously said that they they had considered it. Um, but yeah, so what basically what has happened with this study is a lot of uh, liberal politicians have taken it and kind of conflated two ideas. The study says that okay, eventually maybe we might lose up to five hundred and something million dollars. They're all saying we have already lost five hundred million dollars, which is clearly false, and that was the uh the fact check that we did um this week on 
just one of the politicians, Chris Grow, who's also the head of Equality NC. Yeah, so he's sort of one of the most prominent, you know, yeah. anti-HB2. So he's got the incentive to try to use the, the biggest number he has, but he exactly. also probably knows better because he's monitoring the situation very, very closely. Right, and he he has said that he does not agree with the um, false rating that we gave him, um, and you know, in, in the fact check, I. I gave his side of the view, let him explain himself a little bit and, you know, kind of detailed why, you know, I don't really think that adds up um, and, you know, why the numbers show that it doesn't add up. It really, it looks to a roundabout way of answering your question, Colin, is it, <laughs> it looks like probably the most accurate estimate for how much the state has already lost is somewhere in the range of maybe 80 to 150 million, yeah. um, which clearly is much less than the 500 million that has been claimed by Equality NC, which is Chris's, Chris Grow's group, and by the Human Rights Campaign. And uh, I've started to see it uh, parroted in news stories as well. Um, Time had a story the other day referencing it without actually, you know, they, they said a study says without apparently having yeah, actually read you the know, study. I was, I was talking to somebody else about this the other day is that HP2 in the national and international media has shown me just how sloppy some of the reporting is. Uh, from some of these groups. The the big example this week was that issue of uh, the hacking group Anonymous supposedly had uh, shut down state government websites. It turns out they hadn't. There was no record that they had other than a Twitter account that may or may not have even been connected to Anonymous, but CNN and several other people were reporting it like it was a real story. So it's it, it makes PolitiFact all the more important in, in trying to, to debunk these things before 800 uh, national media groups blasted out there without even really a full attribution. Exactly. And I, I tweeted at um, uh, the editor of Time who had been tweeting out their story, you know, letting him know about the fact check. I never heard back from him. So, Well, it would be less uh, sexy a story if they had a, you know, a more... <laughs> rounded number or yeah. grounded number I guess but uh, and I guess the whole number thing is kind of squishy anyway because you're you're never going to know if there was a company that never publicly said they were considering bringing jobs here but didn't and how much that would cost or the, the story I did earlier this week about uh, tourism numbers uh, the people who are uh, saying that they're going to go take a beach vacation in a what they consider a more progressive state um, there'll be a few numbers off of that but you're never really going to get a good handle on you know how many people were going to come to North Carolina on their vacation and decided to go to Myrtle Beach instead or wherever but um, exactly and that that's part of the argument of the people who have put forward the 500 number which is that okay well even if maybe you say 500 you know isn't already lost well there's other stuff that we can't count yeah the sky's the limit for how big this number can be why not you know inflate it some more because you just don't know i mean it could be really high but yeah there's no real way to to measure some of this stuff exactly and then you're also looking at the opinion polling uh this week as well on the uh tim moore's statement that it was 80 percent of people in polls uh supported the the bathroom provision yeah yeah he said that um 80 percent of people in north carolina don't think that men should be in women's rooms which is you know a uh, I guess an indirect but fairly obvious uh, reference to transgender women using the women's bathroom and um, we rated that half true because there was one poll that did find 80 percent but there have been a total of four polls that I was able to find on the subject and the other three all found lower numbers and two of them found numbers that were closer to about 50 or 55 percent um, so, And then the one that was 80 was from Civitas, which is a group that's been fairly vocally in support of uh, 
HB2. Their their president, Francis DeLuca, was on the same public radio show that they had me on a couple weeks ago where, where he was basically the voice of HB2. Uh, right, yeah. And, um, you know, their, their questions, they, Civitas actually had two polling questions about it. Um, the one that found 80% was uh, fairly... Uh, inflammatory and leading question about forcing middle school children to shower together. Um, yeah, that would probably get you 80%. Right. I would be surprised um, that wouldn't get you 100%. But a, uh, a more, I guess, uh, nuanced question that they had asked on, you know, kind of explaining the transgender bathroom access issue still found 70%. Um, so clearly their polling has found uh, high support. Um, some polls that um, a couple of local TV stations did found more in the range of you know 50 like i said 50 to 60 percent so it's kind of all over the map um hard to say exactly um i think i did the math and all of the polls averaged out to about 65 percent so clearly a uh, a majority no matter which way you look at it but yeah. maybe not the maybe not near unanimous, unanimous. Yeah. yeah all right thanks will and we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with our final segment headliners of the week Your headliner of the week. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Head, 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 headliner of the week. Yes, indeed. Now it's time for our favorite segment, headliner of the week, as we wrap up the week and uh, to look, take a look at who the biggest newsmakers were uh, in the past week in North Carolina politics. And we're going to turn first to Dan Boylan from the Insider. Dan, who's your headliner of the week? Colin, thank you. My insider this week is from deep inside the General Assembly, a fellow named Robert Myrick. Who is the Depre- who? <laughs> Robert Myrick? Who Never the, heard of him. Of course, and that's probably why he's so special. He's the Deputy Sergeant at Arms for the Senate. He retired this week. The Senate extended a session to honor him. Uh, during the session, they mentioned that he had had a distinguished career with the FBI. He had worked as a hostage rescue uh, guy, and he had also uh, been a liaison with the Marines. In addition to being a professional athlete, he'd actually played with the Canadian Football League, where they'd won the equivalent of the Super Bowl. When I was researching him, and I went down to the uh, Sergeant at Arms, the Senate Sergeant at Arms office, and I heard about the FBI, I thought, you know, it's fascinating in the building that you've got some of these really super rational, calm characters who set the stage for the others to be complete <laughs> fill in the blank. Yeah. Robert Myrick, ladies and gentlemen. All right, Robert Myrick. I'm sure this is a fellow who I, I may not recognize his name, but I'm sure I'd recognize his face, and he's probably told me to put on a jacket and tie when I go in the Senate chamber uh, at least a time or two. Uh, we'll turn next to Lynn Bonner from the News and Observer. Lynn, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to pick somebody who was nowhere near the building this week, and that's Joseph DeSimone, who was a renowned chemist um, at UNC Chapel Hill and NC State. Um, he was at in Washington this week where he received a National Medal of Technology and Innovation. Um, he is now, I think, on leave and uh, working on uh, new 3D printing technology in Silicon Valley. And last but not least, he was the News and Observer 2008 Tar Heel of the Year. So, Just uh, a few steps ahead yeah, of Headline right, of the Week. Yeah, right, exactly. So, <laughs> so we were ahead of our time there. So uh, Joseph DeSimone for Headliner of the Week. 
All right. Thanks, Lynn Bonner, for that. And we'll turn next to Craig Jarvis from the News and Observer. Craig, who's your headliner of the week? Well, because I was concerned that we might have a week where we didn't talk about HB2, I had prepared uh, the nomination of Darren Jackson just because he's using every avenue he can to spearhead his uh, attempts to repeal HB2. And this week he tried to <clears throat> get a, um, a budget amendment to, uh, to, to accomplish that, but it didn't even make it to the floor. Yeah, ruled out of order before. It didn't even go on like the, the dashboard where you see the amendments that are being filed. I actually had to get a copy of it from Representative Greg Meyer, another Democrat, in order to even figure out what was in Jackson's proposal. Yeah, it just wasn't going to happen, and so he gets credit for trying. Yeah, and I guess his his other thing, the uh, the proposal, oh, the discharge position, position thing, oh, that, yeah, right. he, he was uh, <clears throat> trying to get 60 signatures to, to, to bring for, that to a vote to on the repeal, repeal to the, to the House um, but he'll need Republicans to do that. It doesn't sound like he's, he's getting any. It doesn't sound like he has anywhere near enough. Yeah, so nice try, Darren Jackson. Darren Jackson in the hat for Headliner of the Week. Uh, thanks, Craig, for that. And we'll turn next to Pat Gannon of The Insider. Pat, who's your Headliner of the Week? I was going to go with House Speaker Tim Moore, given the the vote, the pretty strong vote for the House budget uh, this week. But in the kind of everybody else, the the obscurity of everybody else's uh, picks this week, I'm going to go with uh, Ricky Diaz, the um, a spokesman for Governor Pat McCrory's campaign, who whose job lately has been to respond to all of the cancellations and and um, other. Uh, you know, uh, effects of House Bill 2. And most recently uh, today with the news that Maroon 5 has canceled a couple of concerts, he sent out um, uh, a typical press release we see and, and quote, hundreds of concerts have been su- successfully performed across North Carolina, including Beyonce over the past few weeks since the law passed. We may never know why Maroon 5 waited until weeks later to make their political statement. But at this point, the only people they are hurting by hypocritically tar- targeting North Carolina for selective outrage are the fans and hardworking men and women servicing these shows while they keep tour dates overseas, even in Russia. And that kind of goes along with the same comments that they've made when everybody else has canceled. So Ricky Diaz, the spokesman for a spokesman for the McCrory campaign. All right, Ricky Diaz in the hat and certainly one of the more uh, outspoken folks, especially on uh, on Twitter. I can usually uh, expect a response from Ricky on, on his account or on one of the other McCrory campaign accounts if there's anything that uh, uh, offers the, the governor's campaign an opportunity to respond to some critics in, in some form or another. So uh, he's definitely uh, working hard for the governor, uh, whether you agree with him or not. Uh, Ricky Diaz in the hat. Thanks, Pat, for that. And we'll turn last but not least to Will Doran of the News and Observer. Will, who's your headliner of the week? Well, it's fitting that I go after Pat because I am going to nominate uh, Speaker Tim Moore, um, not for the uh, fact check that we did on him, but because he did, you know, get a budget passed through the House, um, and as you know was mentioned earlier, with bipartisan support, and uh, like Craig mentioned as well, also was able to, uh, you know, make make sure that an anti HB two bill uh, that had been filed, you know, never even made it for a vote. So he had a a pretty successful week all said and done as Speaker of the House. All right. Thanks, Will, for that. Uh, Speaker Tim Moore in the hat. So we've got Tim Moore, uh, McCrory spokesman Ricky Diaz, uh, Senate Sergeant Arms, whose name I've already forgotten, um, Joe Desimone, and... Um, Bob Myrick. Bob Myrick. That's the uh, the guy whose name I've already forgotten. Um, he controls your mind so much that you've just forgotten his yeah, mind. Yeah, just completely, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking guy who tells me to put a tie on, guy who tells me to put a tie That's on. the voice of authority. 
Yeah, exactly. And uh, Darren Jackson, uh, House Democrat, uh, also in the hat. So out of those, um, this being budget week, I think I've got to go with Tim Moore on this one. Uh, You know, to be able to pull in that many Democrats supporting to uh, claim a a bipartisan budget deal and just to get the budget through so darn fast. I mean, uh, there was really not a whole lot of debate. I mean, even the debate in the House was limited to, I think, a couple Democrats complaining, and and that was really it after, you know, not that many amendments compared to last year. So uh, last year, when we were voting on a budget at, you know, midnight or 1 a.m. To, to be done at 6 or 7 p.m. Uh, and have it moving on to the Senate is uh, remarkably smooth and, and great news for those of us who have to work overtime when they do decide to go to midnight. So Tim Moore is our headliner of the week, and that brings us to the end of this week's edition of Domecast. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Where are your full name, Sine? Sine Nina Lucas. How old are you, Sine? I'm 15. Where are you from? I'm from, well, I'm a military brat, so, but, I mean, I live the most in Colorado. But you live in North Carolina now. You live I in live Rome? in Winston-Salem. Oh, Winston-Salem, very nice. You do this often, play in front of crowds? Uh, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Oh, good for you. Very nice. Thank you. And anything that uh, inspires you when you think of playing patriotic songs? Um, well, I mean, it's kind of like a privilege to play for the Senate, so I might as well play something that, you know, everyone believes in, which is basically like patriotism in America. So I guess it was a pretty good choice. been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 